So good to have you here on a Wednesday night. And all kinds of other things are going on, like the beginning of the World Series, uh, Game 6 or whatever it is. And who knows what else is going on in the world, you know. Oh, that's a, there you go. See, all kinds of things are going on in this world. <laughs> hope it's not too scary to anybody. Uh, want to uh, remind you all of a few things that are necessary. Uh, of course, I want to uh, let you know first and foremost about the um, time change that's coming up on Saturday night, Sunday morning. All right, because I don't know if you've noticed, if you get up kind of early in the morning, usually around six, you start seeing sunshine, you know, and now you get up at six, it's like, what time is it? Because it's dark out there. Well, that's the reason they changed the time to uh, back back to what they call uh, standard time. We're, we're going to leave daylight now and uh, go to standard time. And, and in doing that, you know, of course, we'll have an extra hour of sleep. And uh, some of you are really looking forward to that. Well, don't look forward to it too much because... Before you know it, then we're going to lose an hour's sleep again in the spring. So uh, it's just a crazy uh, uh, cycle of things, you know, that go on. But it's all right. You know, we're, we're going to have a um, uh, we're going to need to make sure that we get everything right because I forget what it is. I think if you if you uh, set if you don't set your clock back, um, I think you get here like early. Is it maybe? So you guys can open up when we when we get here, and uh, and everything will be cool. But yes, um, don't forget turn your clocks back. And and, and then I want you to uh, remember that um, the week following, the weekend following, the eighth, ninth, and tenth uh, will be our White is the Gate conference. And uh, there are a few things that I want you to pray for. Uh, I know that we've been asking you to pray for for the conference. And I pray that you all will attend. I think those of you who have been studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights with us uh, really should have a real desire to hear these speakers speak about what's going on in the last day's church and uh, how <clears throat> prevalent this this attitude of 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 changing things, you know, rather than letting God change the heart, we want to change what God's Word says, or we want to change how things are done. And uh, we're going to learn quite a bit about that um, when, the, um, uh, when the conference takes place. So uh, pray, continue to pray that people will really uh, come to, to learn and, and, and not worry about, well, what's going to happen? What are we going to hear? What? Come and listen. It's free, you know. I mean, it's not too often we get that opportunity to hear free things. But, I mean, this is, this is really important information and stuff. The other thing that we want to pray for, because we don't charge for conferences and stuff, uh, we do want you to know that we'll, we'll be taking some love offerings for the speakers. There are four speakers. Uh, three are coming in from out of town. 
And uh, then, of course, we have to house them and feed them and, and, uh, and uh, take care of their transportation here and there. Uh, we, don't, we don't do this because they tell us how much they want, because they never do, especially uh, this group of people. They're, they're just really wanting to uh, provide as, as much information as possible, as well as uh, they'll, they'll have books and DVDs. Books and DVDs uh, available for you to purchase, but we will be taking a love offering uh, each day and each night. But pray that God will really uh, provide and, and, and take care of the costs of, of this, um, of this uh, conference because uh, it, is, it, it, it can get pretty costly. And uh, so we just, we just want to ask the Lord to... Uh, really put it on our hearts, you know, what it is that we need to, to give when the time comes. Okay, so please do that. And i at that point where I don't remember anything else to tell you, so maybe we just need to get into our study this evening. So turn to Revelation chapter 13. Let's do that. If I remember anything, I'll let you know. But right now I don't remember anything other than those announcements that I gave you. Revelation 13. Do not be upset that it's only verses 1 and 2 and we started on 1 last week and we barely got to verse 1 anyway. But as I was thinking about the study of prophecy, we cannot try to learn as much as we can, everything that we can know about prophecy in just a a few studies. Think about this, how long we've been in the book of Revelation already. And how much more we have left to go. Uh, Nine chapters after this. But the information that has been given to us thousands of years ago about the times in which we're living in now and what we're preparing to see in the very near future is incredibly uh, accurate. And the Word of God is incredibly accurate. If I can use the word incredibly, because uh, it's incredible is one of those words that that says, I can't believe this, but we can believe it. It is fascinatingly accurate and reliable. And uh, so uh, it it just the things that we need to spend time on. I I am choosing wisely and carefully and, and prayerfully so that we don't miss anything. I, I don't want to go over stones unturned about some of these things. So that's, that's why it, it's, it's a slow process. But think about this. We're not in chapter 1 anymore. Or chapter 2. Or 3 and so on. So Revelation 13. I'm going to give you the first four verses to read here. Just to kind of keep the context alive for us. And then we're going to take some time to examine these couple of first verses. John writes, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. And as we said last time, it's very possible that really it's only a, a matter of one Greek letter that determines whether he said, I stand on the sea, or he being speaking of the dragon, which was uh, the context of the end of chapter 12. Uh, and, and really, I, I, I think it's more the dragon that's standing there because he is bringing forth this beast that's coming. Uh, I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, 
having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Now remember the word like there, what does it remind us of? That this is symbolic. So it's giving us uh, some symbolism, but the symbolism itself is, is, is re- representing something that is literal. So now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, speaking of Satan and the de- or the devil, the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Well, prior to the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory to establish his kingdom upon the earth, there will arise a false Messiah. And as we learned last time, He will be known by a number of names. In fact, there are at least 13 titles given to this false Christ. Add to that another 13 that are nicknames or or references to this person. So 13 names, you could say there's another 13 nicknames or, or, or just titles. Uh, that uh, we are all, you know, we're going to cover them as we go through these next few chapters. But four of these we looked at last time. If you remember from other scriptures, the Apostle Paul uh, teaching us about uh, him in, in one of his letters to the Thessalonian church, or the church of Thessalonica, he gave the name of man of sin. So we know that the Antichrist is, or the, or this person that we're talking about is the man of sin, the son of perdition, in the same passage that we saw in, uh, I believe, Second uh, Thessalonians, uh, the beast, which is the name that is given to him here in chapter 13, and and then the name that most people call him by, and that is the Antichrist. We don't see the word Antichrist though in the Book of Revelation, but it is mentioned in other places. So these these are the names that we've dealt with so far about this uh, man that we are introduced to. And uh, so we were introduced to him last week as we began our study in chapter 13. And the intro was sort of a composite. Okay, let me have your focus now because I know, I'll just don't let you know, it's raining outside. So don't worry, okay, we're, we're, we're covered and we're dry. All right, got, got that? So focus up here. All right, don't worry about the bowling alley that's upstairs. In other words... So we're introduced this, this, this man last week as, as we began our study in chapter 13. And the intro was sort of a composite. Okay, I'm just trying to, I'm repeating myself because I don't want you to miss this. A composite of other things written of him in scripture. He's mentioned in the book of Daniel. And we're going to actually go to Daniel a few times tonight. The book of Daniel, he's mentioned in the book of Zechariah. Uh, of course, Isaiah mentions him by uh, a few other names, uh, the Apostle Paul, as we've seen, of course, and then, of course, many others, uh, most, mostly the, the prophets. 
And, and during the last half of the tribulation period, known as the Great Tribulation period, the last three and a half years of that seven-year period, this man of sin, this son of perdition, this beast, who we call the Antichrist, will inspire the worship of Satan upon this earth. He will inspire the worship of Satan upon the earth. And a, and a foreshadowing of this event is seen in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that the Hebrew slave Daniel was the only one who could interpret it, this particular dream. And so Daniel interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar of the role that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would play in Gentile history, which actually inspired this Babylonian king to erect an image of himself to inspire his subjects to worship him. Now here, you gotta understand now that you have to see the picture. Here, here he's telling all of his, his counselors and his advisors, I had this dream. He tells them the dream and he says, if you don't interpret this dream, I'm gonna wipe you all out. So you need to find somebody that can interpret this dream. And they had heard about Daniel, a Hebrew slave, who was brought in captivity. That he was a man who could do this. He was a young man at the time. And he's brought before the Lord, but before he goes, he prays. And he asks for God's wisdom. And he tells the king, don't, don't kill anybody. <laughs> I know what your dream means. And he tells them about the parts of this image. And what it represents. Because you see, instead of then listening to Daniel from the standpoint of saying, Wow, your God has revealed this to you. He doesn't really listen to that. He likes the image that he sees of himself. And so he, instead of, of, of considering this from a spiritual standpoint, he says, I'm going to build this image as a real image for people to bow down to worship me. Now, there's reason for that because what it's giving us is a foreshadowing of Antichrist. It's a foreshadowing of Antichrist, which is in fact Antichrist telling all the world, it's not just so much that you're going to worship me. But, in fact, you're going to worship the one who empowers me, who is the devil. Because it has been the devil from the very beginning who has sought to do what? To ascend to the Most High, to ascend into heaven, to sit in that rightful, that, that, the, 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 the place that is only rightful to the one God who created the heavens and the earth, and that is the Lord God Himself. But, to replace all of that. So if Nebuchadnezzar couldn't inspire you to worship his image, he could force you to do so by threatening to throw you into a fiery furnace. Which is what he would later do to the children, uh, the Hebrew children who was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But let me give you a little bit of an, in, uh, an interesting idea of what, what is going on in, 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 in Daniel's time in Babylon. In Daniel 3 verses 4 through 6, after, he, after Nebuchadnezzar now declares to have this, 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 
statue built of himself. He said, then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So, again, this is a foreshadowing of the events that we're seeing in the book of Revelation. A foreshadowing of a beast. And how interesting that later on in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, he actually turns into a beast, doesn't he? Because of his disobedience to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Daniel, God turns him into a beast. And it isn't until he's a beast out in the fields that he looks up and realizes who God is. That's for another time. But in our text now, the scene has shifted in John's life as he's receiving all of these images now from the Lord in vision. The scene has shifted from heaven to the earth in the vision of the dragon standing on the sand of the sea. And once again, we look at it, it says, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. And I mentioned last time that the context and the difference of that one letter in Greek point to the dragon being the one standing on the sand of the sea instead of John referring to himself as the one because here, here's the reason, because it gives prophetic significance to Satan's desire to sit in the place of the Most High. Standing on the sand of the sea. Look at the image. It isn't John. It isn't John's desire to be in the place of God. Because the standing on the sea is significant. It means he wants to be in control of all things and to be worshipped as God. As we stated last time, the sand of the sea indicates Satan's position as usurper of the earth and of his power over its people. The sand is a symbol of the multitudes of people that make up the nations. What did, he, what did God tell Abraham at one, at one point in his life when he was telling him, Listen, Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations. And you will not even be able to count the number of of descendants that you have. They'll be as the sand of the sea. So you think of that as as, as the description of this, this multitudinous group of people and nations. But in particular, the sand of the sea. What sea? We mentioned it last time again. It was, in particular, those of the Mediterranean Sea locale. Why? Because that was the only sea that John knew. And that was the only sea that John knew because God knew that that was the only sea that John knew. And because when you think about it, it is the sea that is the closest to every place and everything that is happening uh, in, in vision to John. Where is Israel? Those of you that have been Israel, been to Israel, where is it? It's on the Mediterranean Sea. 
the nations that surround Israel, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, all of this is significant. And of course, it helps to pinpoint the area that most of the prophetic events will take place. Again, Israel and the Middle East. This is, this is the reason why when, when people do not want to have a futuristic view of prophecy, they fail in understanding the book of Revelation. They fail in understanding the prophets uh, from, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, and you just go on and on, Joel. How do you understand all of these things? How can you try to make some sense of why these things were given to us as the church? If it wasn't because we are going to be here, or at least near here, in the last days, we're already living in the last days, as Paul has already stated. But what takes place after the Lord comes for the church? And why is there an Israel now when there wasn't an Israel for thousands of years? Or thousands of years? Why? So... We, in prophetic understanding, we have to make these adjustments or else the Bible doesn't make sense. But it makes a whole lot of sense if we stay literal and if we will trust that God knows what He's doing in giving us a land that is called Israel, where Jews have now come back to, as he said they would. So the sea, especially to the Jewish people, the sea was always considered to be wild, untamed, really a frightening place to be upon. As a matter of fact, you know, Israel never really had much of a navy, Early on, I mean, they do now, but early on, they didn't have much of a navy. Uh, they depended a, a, upon others, you know, to, to do the, the, uh, the chores on the sea. Solomon did anyway, uh, uh, to be the, the sailors and all. And but they, uh, the Jews for a long time, they didn't mess with the sea. They were frightened about it. Because it was to them the, a figure of evil and chaos. Seemingly resistant to God, though... To no successful conclusion. I, I think of Psalm 89 verses 8 and 9. Where it says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. And notice what it says. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You know, God is in control of the seas. You know, it's interesting that, that uh, Galilee is called the Sea of Galilee. Even though it's not a sea, it's, it's, a, it's a humongous lake. But it's called the Sea of Galilee. And every time we see the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, they're always in trouble. And they were afraid of even being on the Sea of Galilee because, they were, I mean, there were, there were these strong winds that would come down from all the hills that surround that, that area. And I mean, there was all kinds of things going on. And, and the good thing was that Jesus was with them because he could just still the sea, what, couldn't he? Sea has no power over the Lord. And I believe the Lord gave the Jewish people the sea, you know, to, to understand, listen, you need to trust me here. Yes, it is chaos. Yes, it can get pretty nasty out there on, on the sea. But I can comment. You've got to trust me. 
And then John sees this beast. The word for beast is therion, T-H-E-R-I-O-N, therion, or therion, rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name, the name of blasphemy. And this being a symbolic description about its origin and character. A symbolic description. Again, it's not to be allegor- allegoric, but it is symbolic to give us a picture of nature, origin, character of this particular beast. Because you see, the Lord does not see him. And this is what we need to understand about how this vision is coming to John. The Lord does not see him as a man made in a divine image, does he? He, he paints him as a, this wild, venomous animal, which is what Therion means, a wild, venomous animal under Satan's control. Under Satan's control. And yet it is stated later in the chapter that he is a man. Go down to the last verse of chapter 13. It says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Notice. His number is six, 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 six hundred and sixty-six. I hope I whet your appetite with that, because everybody says, Ooh, what does that number mean? The Omen. Remember the movie, The Omen? The kid had 6-6 tattooed on his head. Hollywood doesn't know who the Antichrist is, by the way. So don't worry about it. But the Lord knows, and that's good, isn't it? Our God knows who it is. So why are we worried? Anyway, it's also affirmed twice that he comes out of the abyss. A man. Revelation 11, verse 7. We've already looked at this. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Of course, we know that that is going to be the Antichrist. Go forward to Revelation 17, verse 8. And it says, the beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. So it's letting us know where he's coming from, yet he's a man. And go to perdition, which is lostness. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. I'm not going to explain that until we get there. So this means that although he is a man, he is in league with and is energized by Satan. And you might say, well, God, could that possibly be? Yes, of course it can possibly be. All I've got to mention is one name, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was energized by Satan. And if you don't believe that, or if you don't realize that, you need to someday sit down and watch as many hours of documentaries as I have on Adolf Hitler. And the more you see him when he gives his speeches, especially when he gave his speeches, which were to him actually sermons, It was the religion of the Third Reich that he was promoting and espousing. And you would see him. And man, I mean, you could just sense, even just watching documentaries, you can sense a demonic presence. 
Can you imagine a whole nation or much of a whole nation duped into believing the things that he said that would lead to the murder of seven million Jewish people? Now, just as Jesus is God in the flesh, listen carefully. Just as Jesus is God in the flesh, so the beast, the counterfeit Christ, will be Satan in human body. Satan in human body. We've heard of situations where people have been possessed of demons. But think of one possessed of the devil. Incredibly raises the the level of of wickedness. John 13 verse 2. As the disciples are getting together with Jesus in the upper room before Jesus goes to the cross. Notice that it says, In supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas. Putting what? Into the heart of Judas. Think, uh, just go down to verse 27 of the same chapter. Now after the piece of bread, now the piece of bread speaking of when Jesus said, uh, the, I dip this and the one I give it to, he's, he's the betrayer. He says, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Entered him. It doesn't say a demon, it says Satan. You think a demon was going to be able to withstand? In the sense of, of doing a, a, a deed against the Son of God who was going to the cross? Satan says, I'm not going to let anybody, I've got to do this myself. Of course, he failed. He failed. Because Jesus went to the cross. You know, people will say, you know, he, he wanted to kill the Messiah. Well, good, because you see, if Messiah doesn't die, we don't get saved. I'm not saying good. I'm just saying good about what he's thinking, you know. I'm going to kill the Messiah. He was so blinded by his desire to be in control that he didn't, re- didn't consider that Jesus had told his disciples time and time again, I'm going to die on the cross. But in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. So as for the description of the beast itself, getting back to the beast, we are told that it will have seven heads, ten horns and ten crowns, which speak here of world empires and and will exhibit the characteristic of world domination. And we're going to talk more in specifics when we get to chapter 17. But, but nonetheless, I'm just going to give you some kind of general understanding of, of what these symbols are. Again, the seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns speak of world empires. Think about it. Heads. What, what is the head? Some, something over that controls things. Uh, the horns is about power. And, of course, the crowns is about rule. 
More specifically, as I said, the heads represent the wisdom, though it be man's. It nonetheless, nonetheless, it's it's wisdom, and so rulers have to have wisdom. As I said, the horns represent confederated power, because there are more than just one horn. There are many horns. And the crowns represent, again, ruling authority. The restless world will be, dis- will, will be very desperate for a leader. And, and, and we need to understand that even in our day and time, the world is desperate for some kind of a, of a world leader that can, can bring solutions to the global problems that we have. I, I quoted uh, the, the Belgian prime minister last week uh, from many, many years ago. Even back in the 50s when he was saying, we need a world leader, one world leader that can take care. It, will, it won't even matter if he's a, a devil or a god. But somebody. And, and this, the, the world is primed for this kind of uh, desire. The world is restless. The world is not getting better, is it? The world is just not getting better. No matter what anybody says. It's a lie to think, well, you know, the more we change things, the better the world's going to be. But it's not. Anybody been keeping up with the big promise of what Obamacare is all about? There was a tremendous promise given to this nation a, a couple of years ago about this, this need for this affordable care. Well, it's not affordable and, and nobody in Washington cares. Well, some do. But when you were told that you were going to be able to keep your insurance, and many have already lost it because that was a lie, we lose faith in our, in our leaders. Problem is, as a nation, we've lost faith in the one that can make things right. And that's the Lord Jesus Himself. And I'm thankful that the church is still here so we can continue to preach the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where salvation is. That's where true care took place. That is where we can live safely until the day of Jesus. It's at the cross. So I don't know. I don't know. People are just always looking for answers from men. Men are, going to, men are going to solve this. The world is desperate. And this man that we're talking about in this chapter will represent to the unregenerated mass of humanity. Remember, the unregenerated mass. The people who are not alive spiritually. The people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The ones who have completely and totally and wholesalely rejected the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, They're going to see him as the one who will be the solution to the world's ills. But all of his genius and all of his ability will only combine in blasphemy against God. That's why the text tells us of the name of blasphemy upon his head. And there are some things that we're going to talk about on that in, in, in future studies. But if you will, turn to chapter 17 of Revelation. In your Bibles, please. And then we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. So giving you a little heads up of where we'll be in a little bit. But in chapter 17 of, of Revelation... 
And I, and I mention this because we need to begin to understand that there is a consistency in the descriptions, in the signs and the symbols of the book of Revelation, as well as in the prophecies of the scriptures, uh, Old and New Testament together. There's some consistency in the symbolism. So we'll always know that when something is mentioned, it's going to be mentioned the same way, and it's going to mean the same thing in, in other books, which is again a factor of reliability and accuracy in the scriptures. So in Revelation 17 verse 9, it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, we're talking about the, you know, this, 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 uh, the harlot, but, but we're going to, you know, just disregard that. I'm just talking about the symbolism that we have in chapter 13 that is being explained here in chapter 17. The seven heads are the seven mountains, or are seven mountains or hills, as it were, on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So it, it talks about seven kings. So there are seven mountains and seven kings. Mountains will always be kingdoms, nations, or kingdoms. And each kingdom has its king. Seven mountains, seven kings. Now, five have fallen, one is. Now, this remember, this is being said in the time of John. Up to John's time, five of them have fallen. Five of these kingdoms or nations have fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. Mountains, as I said, speak of human government or nations or kingdoms. Thus, five world empires have come and gone when John was writing. Let me give them to you. The Egyptian kingdom. If you're taking notes, the Egyptian kingdom. The Assyrian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom. In this order. The Medo-Persian kingdom. And the Grecian empires have all risen to the zenith of power and then crumbled and fell. The Egyptians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. Now, it is the Roman Empire that was in existence during the time of the Apostle Paul, or John, I'm sorry, when he wrote this. It was the Roman Empire in existence. And so the government that is to come is the last Gentile world empire before Jesus Christ comes to set up His own kingdom here on earth. So what does this last Gentile world kingdom look like? That's what, that's what we, want, we need to understand. Because the picture is given to us in, in our chapter 13. It's, a, it's described a little bit for us in here in Revelation 17. But what does it look like? Well, Daniel tells us that this last Gentile world kingdom will be a federation of ten nations that would come out of the old Roman Empire. And I'll just say at this point, with a twist. And I'm going to explain that before this night is over. Uh, The ten nations come out of what was the old Roman Empire, but with a twist. It won't be as strong as the Roman Empire of old, for it will be a mixture of these nations or ruling kingdoms, but it will still be powerful. I want you to listen to the words of Daniel to the king, back when we were talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you, O king, were watching. 
Now he's, he's helping to interpret this dream. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you get a picture now of what has taken place? It's all symbolic, but yet it's a literal occurrence because these nations all existed. Well, here the four metals represented four world empires which were to arise in succession until the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth when he shall rule. Christ being the stone cut without hands. Christ being the stone that was cut or cut out without hands. The names of four empires in in the order of their succession are given. Babylon. Now remember, Daniel is seeing this in the presence of the king of Babylon. The gold. Babylon. And then what nation defeated Babylon? The Medo-Persians. The chest of silver, the arms of silver. The Grecian would follow the bronze. And the fourth we know to be the Romans, for it was the Romans under Titus in, in 70 AD who destroyed Jerusalem. Now, this is going to keep this, these things in mind because we've got to come back in just a moment. But this leads us to verse 2 now of our text. So go back to Revelation 13 and look at verse 2. It says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Okay, we're getting a lot of symbols being thrown at us tonight, but we're going to make some sense of it soon. Soon enough. (laughs) So the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So now in this verse, the Lord is using the imagery of Daniel chapter 7. Not 2, but 7. To communicate the nature and the identity of this beast to John. Daniel chapter 7 uses four animals or beasts to describe the course of human government from Daniel's time until the ultimate rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. So what is the first one? The first was a lion. Who's the lion? Babylon. The lion was one of the major symbols of Babylon. The second was a bear, and that was the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, just, just to, to, to let you know, the, the lion, of course, was the majestic, strong, you know, king of the jungle, as it were, uh, uh, image. A bear is huge. 
And, you know, not, it doesn't move very fast. I mean, it doesn't move as, maybe as fast as a cat does or whatever. But nonetheless, it's fierce, and the paws of the bear are just deadly. And this was the Medo-Persian Empire. They, when they moved upon you, they moved in large, large quantities, large, large groups of, of their armies. And, and, and they were slow, but they were effective. That's how they defeated the Babylonians. But then after that came the leopard, which was Greece, or the Greeks. The fourth was a dreadful, indescribable beast, which shared the most terrifying characteristics of the previous beasts, and yet would represent the final world empire under the leadership of a satanic director. So now, keep your finger, of course, here in Revelation 13, and go to Daniel chapter 7. Because notice how all of this is going to combine for us together. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Horns, what is the horn? There's power. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. That horn is the Antichrist. That horn is the Antichrist. Part of this terrible, indescribable, fierce beast, which is the composite kingdom of that time, of that time that's to come. So, again, the beast is a composite of the previous world powers like a leopard, going back to verse 2 of our text, a bear and a lion. So he combines the abilities and the characteristics of the leaders of three world empires preceding the Roman, the swiftness of the leopard, the overpowering tyranny of a bear, and the wild ferocity of the lion. Why are these in reverse order, you might ask? Well, it may be that John saw the animals as he was looking back, while Daniel saw them while he was looking ahead. And really, that that gives us a description, you see, how prophecy works. Daniel saw the lion, Babylon, the bear, Medo-Persia, the leopard, the Greek. From John's perspective... But before the Romans were around, he's, he knew about the Greeks. And, then after the, and before that was the, the bear, the Medo-Persian. Before that was the Babylonians. So they're looking at, in the same direction, you see. And yet God has, 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 has put it all together so it makes sense that way. So now let's come back to something I said earlier and have implied over the past few weeks. Because most of Bible prophecy teachers or most Bible prophecy teachers and students have all stated that the nations from which the Antichrist will come will be a revived Roman Empire. And I'm sure if you've, if you've studied, you know, a, a future, uh, futuristic prophecy, 
buffs and all, uh, pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, uh, uh, futuristic perspective, most will say that Antichrist is going to come from a revived Roman Empire. And there's a good reason to consider that because you see, remember that uh, the Romans were the iron of the statue. But the feet were of iron and clay. Every part became weaker down to the end. Yet they were still strong. And, and so uh, the consideration is because it is iron and clay, then it is a revived Roman Empire, which implies to them and has for the last 40, 50 years or so, that Europe will be the origin of this beast. We used to say, oh, listen, you know, take a look at Europe because the Europe is, is going to become uh, the European common market. It's, it's going to, and, it, and, and they're going to start, you know, combining and, and uniting the nations together. And, and so there should be ten nations because of the ten horns. Ten nation confederacy. So then all of a sudden the European community started gathering and then they, the, the, the common market, you know, had, it, it, you know, they, they had the, the, uh, France and Germany and, and all these other, and they, they started that up. They had nine. So far, and they said, okay, that when, once the tenth comes in, we, we got them and we're ready, right? And Greece became the tenth nation of the, of the, of the European common market. And everybody said, yeah, there it is, the ten nations. And then after Greece came the eleventh and the twelfth and the thirteenth and the fourteenth and the fifteenth and the twentieth and the twenty-first and the twenty-second. And then we say, okay, we gotta go back to the drawing board. What did I say about adjusting? We have to adjust, don't we? Because as things start happening, we have to say, okay, what's taking place now? Because we thought it was ten nations. Well, there's still seven mountains that have to be dealt with. There's still ten nations that are mentioned. But now we have to adjust our understanding of it. And one thing that is going to cause all of this adjustment for us is the religion of Islam. But hold on to that for just a moment. Because Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 clearly states that the Antichrist will be of the people who destroyed the temple in the first century. So what's the first thing you're going to say? Rome, right? He's got to be Italian. Al Pacino. Okay. Some people think that the seven mountains is Rome. A lot of people are going, Rome, that's, that's, that's the, 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 the base for the Antichrist. Maybe the Pope is the Antichrist. Wrong. A good thought. Maybe. But no. Remember biblical consistency. The consistency of the scriptures to tie everything together properly. We can't just jump on supposition, jump on speculation. Because of course, remember this, we haven't gotten there yet. So we're looking forward. Yet we still have the word of God that is consistent. So we sometimes fail to remember that the Roman Empire was more than just Europe. Ugh. Right? I mean, it was more than just Europe. 
When we talk about the Roman Empire, it included parts of the Middle East, it included Africa, and it included Turkey. And although the Roman soldiers who participated in the destruction of the temple were Roman citizens, quote-unquote, they were not necessarily Europeans because the Roman legions that laid siege against Jerusalem were stationed in the Middle East. One source states that certain legions that were formed during Passover in 70 AD, as a matter of fact, they, they've, they've narrowed the date down to 14 April 70 AD as Passover. And on Passover they formed these camps from Syria and Macedonia, not from Rome. Walid Shubat and, and Joel Richardson in, in, in a book that they wrote called God's War on Terror, uh, they write this, they say, indeed the majority of the Roman soldiers that destroyed Jerusalem were Arabs, Syrians, and Turks. When we look at the four Roman legions that were under Titus during the siege against Jerusalem, we see that they were from the eastern portion of the empire and were primarily from Syria or eastern Turkey. The people of the Antichrist are not necessarily going to be Europeans, but Middle Eastern. All, historicals account, all historical accounts point mainly to the Syrians. Now the Syrians of the first century are not the Syrians of modern times who are mostly Arabic or Arabs. Those of the Roman times were actually called Assyrians in native identity and cultural heritage. And the preserved Assyrian people today, and by the way, I can tell you, there are, there are preserved Assyrian people just as there are Chaldeans who, who were still come from the very region where Abraham came from. Remember, he came from the Ur of the Chaldees, the same area around the Mesopotamia, I'm sorry, around the Euphrates and Tigris River, rivers, the Ur of the Chaldees. There are Chaldeans today. As a matter of fact, when we go to Israel, the, 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 the last store we go to in Jerusalem is run by a, a man that's the sweetest man. Uh, the, yeah, he sells uh, olive product, olive wood products, and, and 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 he actually boasts that he's a Chaldean, <laughs> and they have their own language and and, and all, and, and so uh, they're still around. But here's the point: that the Assyrian people who are preserved today, for the most part, they live in places like Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, and are not ethnically Arabs, but they are all. Muslim, or the majority are Muslim. And this is in total agreement with the scriptures, which should be our final authority in identifying the people of the Antichrist. As I said the last time, the Antichrist is called the Assyrian. He is called the Assyrian in Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5, in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 25, in Isaiah 30 verses 30 through 33, and in Micah chapter 5 verses 5 and 6. I'm just going to give you one because of time. In Isaiah 14 verse 25, it says that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and it's talking about the Antichrist. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. 
Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. So, as the Assyrian, what is it saying? I mentioned last week that he is also called the Egyptian. He's called the Prince of Tyre. These are other names that we're going to be seeing along the way as we deal with this person named the Antichrist. But why these places? Because they all have become enemies of God and of God's people. Antichrist is actually called in a couple of places the Pharaoh of of Egypt. Again, to point out that when Jesus comes, if you will look carefully from Genesis to Revelation, but mostly in all the prophecies about Antichrist, when you look at what is taking place in the end time, when Jesus comes to fight battles on behalf of his people, there is not one nation that he fights that isn't today an Islamic nation. Please keep that in mind. He's not going to come to fight against Mexico or Canada or Sweden or Luxembourg. Do you see? You can't find that. Yes, he is going to come and battle all the nations that have turned against God's people. But the ones that are mentioned by name, Tyre, Sidon, Sidon, Egypt, Edom, all these prophecies, it speaks of Jesus coming to fight them. He's coming. Europe today is quickly becoming dominated by Islam. So it is easy then to see how a revived Roman Empire will be overcome and overrun by an Islamic leader. The Antichrist is going to be a beastly prince and the dragon will be his strength and motivation. We've we've talked from time to time about the motivation of of, of Islam. What What is the driving force of Islam? Truly, it isn't really religious. It is political. It's geopolitical. But when you consider... Islam. They have one goal. And it isn't, a, it isn't a different goal than what you would call moderate Islam, because in the end, all Islam is going to unite. They're not united today, but they will one day. Because it all depends on the coming of this Antichrist who Arabs today who have come to Christ, Arabs today who have come to Christ will tell you, when we read the description of your Antichrist in, your, in, in the Bible, we see Islam's Mahdi. Our Mahdi is your Antichrist. And the Islamic people are waiting for the Mahdi to come. Because he's going to... It's, it's, kinda, it's, it's the counterfeit, you see, of Jesus coming. It's Allah coming. 
and his prophet Muhammad. It's the counterfeit. We've kind of let that pass, but now in Bible prophecy today, it's beginning to raise attention. And I'm just wanting you to raise attention a little bit and, and study more deeply along these lines. Let me close with this thought. Because on the other hand, our Lord and Savior and Redeemer is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He is the great I Am and nothing and no one will be able to stand before Him or against Him. And I want to close with Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6. Again, as an, in, as an encouragement because we've been so much dealing with this Antichrist. But in Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6 it says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Sitkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Be encouraged. Jesus is coming. Be encouraged that the things that we see today should only let us know that our Lord is so close to being here. And He wants us to keep looking up because our redemption draws near. He wants us to have a love for His appearing. Which means that prophecy needs to change our hearts. I, I, I don't want this to be an academic lesson as much as I want it to be an awakening to some, an encouragement to others, a warning to most, and a preparation for all. That Jesus can come at any moment and we as His people need to be ready. And if we're not sure if we're His people or not, let's make it sure today. Call upon the name of the Lord, and He shall, and you shall be saved. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that He's risen from the dead. Repent of your sins. Be sorrowful for them, but yet remember the joy that will come when you give your life completely and totally to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.